Michelle, I probably won't pronounce her name right, Geller, G-E-L-L-A-R, you know who she is? Yeah, who is she? Yeah, she's an actress, you know what the TV show is? Not many, one of your top ten TV shows. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know Buffy? Got somebody else that know Buffy? Okay. Uh, here's what Buffy said. I consider myself a spiritual person. I believe in an idea of God, although it's my own personal idea. I find most religions interesting, and I've been to every kind of denomination. Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist. I've taken bits from everything and customized it. There you go. Customized faith. What we're going to do this morning is not be able to cover every kind of faith that exists out there in the world today, but we're going to try to cover at least the top ten in terms of uh, religious uh, communities that exist in, in our world, religious belief systems that uh, exist out there. And we do so knowing that uh, we represent, obviously, one of those. And uh, we need to be upfront from the beginning and say that... Uh, the one we represent involving Jesus Christ is pretty extraordinary. Because it's the only one that makes the kind of claims that Jesus made. So, for instance, if you go to John 14, uh, 6, uh, and you read verse 6 there, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who said that? I highlighted it for you. Jesus said that. And you know what makes us really comfortable is the first half of the verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We think, yeah, well, that's good. How uncomfortable do you get, though, when you hear the second half of the verse? When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Not very politically correct in our world, is it? And yet that's the truth claim that Jesus makes. Jesus makes the simple, forthright claim that he is the path. He is the way that leads to God and the experience of the kingdom of heaven. And that may make our world terribly uncomfortable as we continue to be uh, so concerned about being politically correct. But we have to wrestle with that simple truth. And he's not the only one to say it, by the way. He's not the only one that ever made that, that claim. Some of his followers made the same claim in his name. So you've got uh, the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts in the fourth chapter. When he's brought out in front of uh, the governing body of the Jews because he healed somebody, he's brought in front of these uh, very important politically powerful people. And in Acts 4.12 it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And of course, you know what name that is, right? Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus makes the claim, and those who followed him made the claim that he is the only one. It is bold, and it is potentially offensive to some people in our world, and it's obviously politically incorrect, perhaps, but nevertheless, it's the claim that we have to wrestle with. So today, as we look at all these world systems out there of the top ten uh, religions in the world by number, we need to keep in the back of our minds this incredible claim and keep asking the question as we look at every one of these, 
Do they measure up to the same plane? Do they measure up to the same truth that you find in Jesus Christ? Okay, ready for the journey? Not going to be up front with you. Uh, wait a minute, I should probably just do a little. There you go. Now you've been entertained. That's all the entertainment you're going to get from this message. Okay? This is not going to be an entertaining message. This is going to be just information coming at you as fast as I can get it out because uh, we only have so long before the Packer game, right? <laughs> the early game, I think. Yeah, I got those 315s, so I'm cool. But you guys got to get home. So uh, I'm just going to get information out there as quick as I can for you, okay? All right, let's look at the chart. Now, just to give you an awareness, this is what sociologists look at in our world as they look at the religious systems in the world and the way it basically splits up in terms of uh, percentages of numbers of people that uh, participate in these uh, religious systems. And you can see right away that there's a pretty stark contrast between some of the bigger ones and the very small ones, isn't it? One of our folks, by the way, at the uh, early service, especially living in our community, was so surprised to see uh, Judaism as so small. Isn't that fascinating, especially in the political scheme of things and how concerned we are over you know, what the impact of that politically? And, and by the way, just a sub-note, I'm a political guy. Uh, I don't talk politics in the pulpit, but just keep your ears and sensitivities open as we go through these religions, and you'll understand why the political situations are the way they are. Uh, even today. It's really fascinating. But anyway, you can see how everything uh, splits out. We can't cover all of those things, but we can tell you that the top seven in those groups represent 97% of humanity involved, well, of humanity. Uh, including, by the way, you'll notice up there, including non-religious people. So the sociologists have, have, have included the number of people who look at themselves and understand themselves to be, uh, be non-religious people not affiliated with any particular, uh, any particular uh, system. Um, so what we're going to do this morning is try to cover real quickly uh, the top ten and uh, the first uh, five or six we're going to go real fast. Ready? Here we go. Number ten. Uh, number ten is Joe Che. Uh, Joe Che is uh, 19 million people and it's uh, North Koreans. Uh, if you live in North Korea, and you're under the rule of Kim Il-sung, you are a member of this group. You have no options. If you are North Korean, then you participate in this religious system. It was founded by Kim Il-sung. Heard of him lately? Yeah, been really on the news a lot lately, haven't you? Yeah, you bet. Well, his 19 million people who live in his North Korea are adherents to this because it is the government-authorized ideology in his country. Uh, and 2K means self-reliance. Self-reliance. Basically, when you boil it all down, it comes down to an understanding that man is the master of everything and decides everything. It is nothing but humanity-focused. There are no claims about heaven. It has no description of how you get to heaven. Uh, and it generates no belief about life after death at all. It's all about simply serving the state and being a responsible citizen uh, within North Korea. Number nine, uh, Sikhism. Uh, the Sikh religion is kind of a hybrid of Hinduism and Islam. Its founder was a guy named uh, Nanak, 
who, uh, after enduring years of violence between those two groups, the Hindus and the Islamic groups, <coughs> in violence, uh, he uh, went and took a bath one day. I don't know why you have a revelation in a bath, but he went and took a bath in a stream, and uh, he uh, got lost in the midst of that, wasn't seen for three days. He emerged after those three days and proclaimed that he had had a revelation. And his revelation was straightforward. It said, there is no Hindu and there is no Muslim. And so he began seeking. The next solution to the problem of the warring between the Hindus and the Muslims was to basically adopt a little bit of that and a little bit of this and put them both together. So he adopted uh, monotheism uh, from the Muslims and the concept of karma and reincarnation from the Hindus, and he melted all that together into uh, Sikhism. If you're a Sikh, you want to devote your life to the five kings. Um, and that's how you ex continue to grow spiritually, is through the practice of the five Ks. So, for instance, number one in the five Ks is Kis, which means you just go, uh, you don't cut your hair. Kind of a Samson thing. You have uncut hair. So you'll see the turbans, you know, wrapping the hair up and all that stuff. That's fine. Uh, Kis of uncut hair. You practice uncut hair. You carry a small comb uh, called a kanga, and you, uh, you uh, wear ceremonial short pants, the kachal ceremonial short pants, uh, and then you have a kachu, which is a heavy metal bracelet, and you have a kirpan, which is a small dagger, weapon sword dagger. And these are all ceremonial things, and if you carry these things, and you're religious about practicing those five Ks and having these on your person, that it helps you in the practice and the growth of your spiritual life around Sikhism. There are 23 million Sikhs, most of them live in India, in the Punjab province, uh, some have migrated to Canada, the United Kingdom, uh, some to the U.S. and Malaysia and Singapore. Secretly. Number eight, African tradition religions. There's a hundred million of those folks. Most of them are in Africa, between various tribes, all kinds of offshoots. Uh, some have migrated to the Western Hemisphere here, but uh, basically um, they practice some form of uh, animism. And animism is a spiritual belief that all creation is animated. It says that plants, animals, rocks, rivers, sand, soil, all of creation <coughs> is somehow infused with the inhabiting presence of a God. And so uh, there is a, a, a multiple presence of God in the world, of polytheism, of multiple presence of God's in the world, so there's the God of the rocks, the God of the trees, the God of the sky, the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of the night, all of that stuff is the polyth poly yeah, polytheism of uh, the presence of gods loose uh, in the world. And you go back into ancient cultures and you see that all over the place, right? In fact, in our own country, you would experience in the, that kind of polytheism, animism in the uh, Native American culture, you know? with uh, understanding God's presence in, in all things and the happy hunting grounds and all that stuff, right? So that's animism, right? And the way you, you appease God, if you believe in that, is through sacrifice. Some of the cultures was human sacrifice, mostly uh, animal sacrifice. But you live a system that says we are here to care for creation and please God uh, as we do that. Okay. Number seven, um, primal indigenous. 
300 million folks, uh, Siberia, Asia, India, uh, and it's really similar to what I just described uh, with the African tradition uh, uh, religions. Basically, uh, pretty much pretty much the same kind of thing, but they grouped them into two groups for some reason. Okay. Number six. Uh, now we get into the meteor stuff. Uh, stuff you may, you may know more about too. Number six is Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism has 376 million uh, followers. Uh, Siddhartha uh, was raised, the founder was raised in a high caste in a Hindu family. And because he was in a high, ca high caste in the Hindu caste, he was in a leisure class. And so he had plenty of time because he was in a leisure class to think and to meditate and to uh, try and understand life and its problems. So the story goes that he went uh, one day and sat uh, under the fig tree, and he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights and meditated. And during the experience of that meditation, he finally experienced enlightenment. And so he became Buddha. Buddha means the enlightened one. What did he realize? He sat there under the fig tree meditating, and as he meditated, what he realized and the revelation that he, enlightenment that he received is what became known as the Four Noble Truths. Ready? The keys to enlightenment. Four Noble Truths. Number one, life is about suffering. That's simple. He looked at the world and he said, look, that's, life is just full of suffering. That's the way it is. Number two, cravings are the root cause for suffering. Life is about suffering. And cravings, that's what leads to all this suffering. So number three, you can follow this, the cure for suffering is to eliminate what? Cravings. Exactly. Makes sense. Life is all about suffering, and cravings are the cause for suffering. And what you need to do in your life is live so you eliminate the cravings and therefore eliminate the amount of suffering that goes on in your life. The answer then is number four, you eliminate the cravings by following an eightfold path. Number one, you need to make sure you have right views, chiefly that you embrace the four noble truths. Number two, you need to have right resolve. You need to be committed to these four noble truths. You need to renounce all the pleasures of the cravings that would lead you away and detach yourself away from the world and learn to crave less and less and less and become more and more uh, toward enlightenment. Number three, you need to have right speech, no lying, slandering, or cruel words. Number four, you need to have right behavior, no killing any living creatures, no stealing, no sexual immorality. Number five, you need to have a right uh, occupation, gainfully employed. Uh, number six, you need to put in right effort, try to rid yourself of all the cravings, all the bad qualities, and seek human perfection in your life. Number seven, right contemplation. You need to be alert. You need to be observant. And number eight, right meditation. You need to set aside time to just think deeply, regularly, detaching yourself from the world and just being in meditation for your own growth toward enlightenment. If you follow those paths, the eightfold path, then you will achieve a oneness of enlightenment with the universe that will leave you detached from the suffering and detached from all of the hindrances of this world. And that's, in a nutshell, Buddha's system. Make sense? Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. All right, number five. 
Number five is Chinese traditional uh, religion. Uh, 394 million, most of them are in China. Uh, you have a couple of founders, Lao uh, Tse and Confucius, uh, the founders. Uh, most of these folks are in China, uh, and it's Taoism and Confucianism. Say that five times real fast. Try that. That'd be good. Uh, both of them, both of them are concerned with how you live an honorable life. And as you live that honorable life, how you respect and preserve the ancestors. So the goal is not so much reaching for heaven. In fact, it's not really talked about in this system. They talk about heaven or an afterlife beyond simply the respect of the ancestors. It is all focused on trying to just live uh, a good life now and venerate those who have gone before you. Now you need to keep in mind, what country is this moment mostly from? China. China people don't have a lot. They're very poor. And so the focus of their life is figuring out how they're going to survive to tomorrow. And because they're focused on how they're going to survive tomorrow, this system allows them to just exist for the day. And they don't worry about an afterlife. They're too worried about whether they're going to be able to eat tomorrow. It's that simple. And so they have no particular deity, just maybe an impersonal force. It's uh, just not stressed having a relationship with God. It's about living an ethical life and venerating the ancestors. Number four is Hinduism. Okay? Hinduism. It's got 900 million uh, followers. Most of them are in the country of India. Uh, and India holds 14% of the world's population. It doesn't have a founder. Hinduism, Hinduism is something that evolved uh, and developed within India over an 800-year uh, period from various tribal groups. Uh, and it became more and more sophisticated and finally became uh, codified. Hindus believe that there is one uniform force in the world. One uniform force in the world, the Brahman. One uniform force. And right away, all of you are going... Luke, trust the force. Right? <laughs> sure, right away. I clicked on me. Luke, trust the force, right? But it ultimately, it's, it's kind of that kind of thing. That there is this force that is just kind of loose in the world. And it's the ultimate aim of every Hindu to meld themselves intimately with the force. To, to be in heaven for the Hindu is the experience of being absorbed into the great cosmic unconsciousness of the force. That's the goal. That you become one with the force. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You remember when he, when he let him, you know, held his sword up and, and Darth Vader killed him. And, you know, he told Luke, don't worry about it, Luke, because I become even more powerful because I become part of the force. Remember that? Am I the only one to watch the movie? Oh, that was a great piece of the movie. He puts us in. But anyway, the whole deal for Hinduism is that, that you become part of the force. And that is uh, the goal of things. The goal of things is to grow so far that you reach nirvana where you become part of the force. How does that happen? The way that happens is through reincarnation. For the Hindu life is a series of reincarnations that you are born into one particular caste 
and you live your life, and if you live your life ethically enough, if you live your life in tune with the force enough, then when you die, you get to be reincarnated and moved up the ladder. And every time you get reincarnated, you have a new opportunity of living a life in tune with the force. And the more you do that, and the more often you do that, how many times you are reincarnated, every time you live in conjunction with the force in that life, then you move up. The next time you're reincarnated. And you keep moving up until ultimately you may either become a demigod, where you're part human, part God, and then ultimately, if you live every time in union with the force, you will actually become the force. You'll be absorbed into the great force loose in the world. And that is nirvana. Now for any of you who are wondering how many times you have to get reincarnated, anybody wondering that? Okay, I won't tell you. Are you wondering that? Sure. Yeah, somebody estimated along the way that it takes 600,000 lifetimes, 600,000 lifetimes to achieve nirvana. Now, you got to understand, there's also a hitch, that as you're reincarnated and you live this perfect life in conjunction with the Force, if you don't live the perfect life in conjunction with the Force, guess what happens? You get reincarnated and you go backwards. You go back down because you didn't live a life in conjunction with the Force. And so if you don't live that life, then you go back down. It's kind of like, ooh, you lose two spaces. You know? Um, and so then you have to start over to get to live a perfect life, live a perfect life, live a perfect life, until finally uh, you reach nirvana. Okay? Still with me? Okay, number three, secularism. This is my favorite one because I think this is the one that is closest to home for us. Look at that number. How many people <laughs> live life in this mental attitude, this spiritual attitude? 1.1 billion people. <laughs> Holy cow, I'll take 10% right here. <coughs> Think what we could be if we reach 10% of those people. 1.1 billion people live as secularists, non-religious <coughs> people, agnostics people, uh, or, or atheist people. Scholars just kind of, or sociologists just kind of lump all those uh, folks together. And of course, these are the folks that are trying to get, you know, uh, one nation under God out of the pledge of allegiance and all that kind of stuff, right? I think you can also add in there uh, a group of people that uh, I understand described as cultural Christians. You know, cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity is a universalism that's floating out there in our world especially that says, you know, uh, everybody is going to experience heaven. Everybody's going to be saved. doesn't matter what you do in life. doesn't matter how good you were or how bad you were or how you lived your life at all. Besides, everybody just deserves to be able to go to heaven. And so there's just this rampant belief out there in the world that somehow everybody is just going to be saved. It's kind of a cultural uh, Christian universalism kind of thing. You see it the most at funeral homes. It is the most obvious at funeral homes where everybody knows how the person lived or everybody knows whether they knew Jesus Christ or not and yet around the funeral home everybody's already talked about, well, you know, everybody's saved. You you heard that before? That is a cultural universalism that exists in in our world uh, today. 1.1 billion people. Number two, this one is also close to us in our world right now. 
Number two is Islam. 1.3 billion uh, Islamic people in the world. And uh, Islam is one of the most aggressive uh, proselytizing religions in the world. Both Christianity and Islam have both the commands to reach new people. And it is part of our character and identity as a faith is to reach new people. The difference is, the difference is that in the Quran, Islamic uh, religion teaches that you expand uh, and reach new people by reaching new territory. That you take over geography. And so you'll see that Islam over history has expanded itself and expanded itself and is primarily done through the expansion of taking over geography, taking over countries. And so we see it even in our world today as Islam seeks to take over political systems and take over geography. It is part of the character of Islam to proselytize through that kind of expansion. It was founded by Muhammad uh, in 610 AD. Uh, he rebelled against local Arab tribesmen of his days and he received a revelation. You need to understand that when he, when Muhammad had the revelation, it was a time of polytheism where the tribesmen believed in the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of rain, the God of night, you know, a polytheistic number of gods, every major feature having its own god. Well, Hannah came along, and he had a revelation, and he came back to the tribesmen and said, you got it wrong, there is only one god. And his name is Allah. Now, run through your mind and picture the uh, Arab flag, and you will know which god won. Can you picture the Arab flag? You know what appears on, on most Arab flights? Right. It's the uh, little sliver of moon, right? Remember that? There's always just a little sliver of moon. <laughs> yeah. That's because Allah was the moon god. And Muhammad came out and said, after Revelation, there isn't a whole bunch of gods, there's only one god, and it's the moon god, Allah. He is the one. So Islam is monotheistic, one God, and Muslims then exist to serve Allah. Uh, to, be, to become a Muslim is to become a submitted one. It is a, a religion of submission. Muslim simply means submitted one. Okay? Uh, and they have the Quran uh, as the book of, of, of teachings. And basically, you sum it all up, it gets boiled down to the five pillars of Islam, the five pillars of Islam, that to be a submitted one, to be faithful to uh, Allah, uh, is to follow the five pillars. Ready? Pillar number one is to say the Shahada, to recite the Shahada over and over again. The Shahada is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is, is his prophet, and you recite that. Number two, to say the, to uh, pray the Shalat, we pray five times a day facing Mecca where uh, Muhammad is from. You face, uh, pray five times a day facing Mecca. Sunrise, noon, mid-afternoon, sunset, and early evening. Is that five? I think so. Five times. You uh, give to the poor. There is a formula by which the uh, Islamic person is required to give. Uh, and you fast during the month of Ramadan. And why Ramadan? Because that's the time when you, uh, you believe uh, 
Muhammad received his revelation. And the last one, the fifth one, uh, is you make a hajj. You make a uh, pilgrimage uh, to Mecca. And it's really kind of interesting when you're over in Jerusalem and in the Muslim areas, uh, you'll see doorposts that are uh, decorated uh, and painted as, as a sign and a symbol that they have made their hajj. They want the community to know that they just moved up in spiritual uh, in the spiritual realm because they've completed one of the pillars, they've made their hajj, and their whole door is decoratively brightly painted in color. It's really interesting uh, to see. But you have to make your hajj. You can get out of that if you're really, really poor. If you're really poor, you can be excused from making your pilgrimage uh, to Mecca. Now, here's the big one. The big one is... When it comes to Islamic understanding of heaven, the view of the afterlife, it would be described not as heaven, it would be described as uh, paradise. Uh, and paradise, uh, ladies, sorry about this, for the Muslim, is primarily for the males. Some variance is there, but it's primarily uh, for the males. And if you go into the Quran, uh, the Quran uh, you can read descriptions of what paradise is going to be like. And let's see, do we have any little guys in the room? Uh, close their ears maybe a little bit. Uh, the Quran in Surah 55 says, uh, There are bashful virgins whom neither man nor genie have touched before. Virgins as fair as coral and rubies. Uh, Surah 56 says, They shall recline on jeweled couches face to face, and there shall wait on them immortal youths with bowls and oars and a cup of purest wine that will neither, uh, neither pain their heads nor take away their reason. You know what that means, right? Yeah, you won't get drunk, you won't have a hangover. But you get the buzz. That's what it means. With fruits of their own choice and flesh of fowls that they will, they will relish in. And there shall be the dark-eyed... There's a special word there. There shall be a dark-eyed uh, virgin chased as hidden pearl, a reward for their deeds. How do you think, guys? Usually the guys are kind of sitting up going, well, that sounds pretty paradise to me. <laughs> kind of those versions there. The girls kind of get left out of that. But you can see the description from the Quran, at least, of what paradise is, is going to be like. Okay. Um, and ladies, I can't tell you much more than that for you. I don't really know. All right, let's move on. Number one is uh, Christianity. And uh, here's the key for us. Number one is Christianity, and there are two billion of us out there. And we go back where we started, that Jesus made these extraordinary claims that he was the way, the truth, uh, and the life. Now, the big difference is Jesus came along, and he taught and made the extraordinary claim, not only was he the way, but he also made the claim that he was God. Remember that, right? Jesus came along and said that he was God. That God chose to encase himself in flesh and come and walk with us and be one of us and show us the path of life. And even more, that he came to die for each one of us. That Jesus Christ came to walk this, this life to not only show us how to live, but he came to walk this life and die when we deserve it. And to die for us. 
It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And there is the huge difference in the road. The huge difference in the road between Christianity and all the other roads that we've quickly traveled this morning is right there. Unlike all the other religions that we have described, Christianity has a Savior. Unlike all the other roads that we've described this morning, Christianity is based on a loving God who extends grace. Christianity is based on having a Savior who is willing to pour out his life's blood so that we can live and be free. Christianity is based on a picture of heaven and an afterlife that is all about living in the presence of God. We can go to Revelation 21 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. What's the big thing? I'm out of time. What's the big thing? As you're looking at the roads that are out there, you need to understand that Christianity is so unique compared to all the other roads. It is the only road with grace. It is the only road with forgiveness. It's the only road 